0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Uh, climate change, Tyler, a topic that's unavoidable on the American shoreline or shorelines around the world. And you know what? On the terrestrial landscape as well. It kind of covers I would even say it on covers the high it all. Seas. <laughs> on the high seas. It covers it all. But it's a subject that's a little bit complicated. There's uh it's it can be controversial. Um, I'm I'm dedicated to the notion that we uh, need to get smarter about climate change and what's being done with it. Uh, We've had some really good shows uh, dedicated to the climate change issue. Susan Havorka and her team at the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology on secure geologic storage research. Tim Kruger, who was with us from Origin Power in the UK, a, a firm that's dedicated to Uh, removing CO2 from the atmosphere and trying to do something economically positive with it. Uh, We're continuing that series today, Tyler. I am really looking forward to talking to Eli Mitchell Larson, who was a researcher, another researcher at the University of Oxford, uh, earned his master's in environmental change and management. And as he described it, the climate change master's degree. And he is a former impact investor at New Island Capital and a social entrepreneur at Sun Farmer, an off-the-grid solar company. So this guy is both an academic and a researcher and a business person in the issue of new energy. What a cool interview. I'm looking
1: forward to this one. And just an all-around badass. I, uh, Eli was on the uh, Joko cruise with me. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, valued listeners, we, you by now know that I was uh, at sea. Well, all this Corona uh, stuff kind of tipped off, and Eli was at sea with me, uh, which was interesting, to, needless to say. But he he gave an amazing talk uh, about the carbon neutralization plan. I guess we can say for the cruise itself, which the the partners of the cruise have uh, implemented, and. So, I went and heard this talk, and I was like, we've got to have this dude on the network. It was, he, Eli, you explained the stuff so well. Uh, you're clear. And I think it's a good time to take a step back and kind of relearn what we're doing with carbon and what the carbon cycle is and how we're treating it. So, it's going to be a great interview. But before we get into it, Eli, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by. LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your Dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable Dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Well, Eli,
0: uh, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. A real uh, uh, real, uh, privilege to talk to professionals like yourself who are uh, neck deep in an issue of tremendous concern to our listeners. Uh what I'd like to start with is just uh getting to know you a little bit better and helping our audience get to know you a little bit better. Uh, how did you get from the coast of Maine to the UK and become a climate change student at the University of Oxford?
2: Well, thank you Peter and thanks Tyler and and Tyler, great to be back on land safely with you after our uh, adventure on the seas with no Joe Cruz. Um, yeah, so Thanks, Peter. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, growing up in Maine, I was always very sort of connected to nature and climate. Grew up in the sort of forested part of the state and also to the sea and to the coast. And that's part of the reason why I'm really excited to be on your podcast today. Uh, Grew up doing a lot of boating, being very connected and aware of the sort of dependence on the lobster fishery and and the fisheries industries in Maine in general. Um, And yeah, I I ended up studying geology and geophysics and getting into a very specific discipline I think when I when I first heard about geology I thought that meant you learn about rocks well it turns out now you have to sort of hyper specialize in any one of a number of fields and I I was working on geochemistry which is how do you use the chemical signatures within substances the stable isotopes so not the radioactive isotopes you hear about with carbon dating but the stable ones to tell a story about the earth's history and really reconstruct what climate change was like what temperature was like salinity what the environmental conditions were like in our distant past before we had thermometers and such. And so coming out of that background, I ended up uh, going into the private sector, actually, and working at an impact investment firm called New Island Capital, where we really tried to do fairly commercial for-profit investing that unambiguously advanced uh, really progressive social and environmental mission, whether that meant investing in solar and wind assets or, or timberland that we would manage sustainably. and Lock into place with conservation easements, Uh, and that was sort of a a chance for me to sort of exercise some of the science I had learned, but in a much more practical space where you're really putting capital to work and trying to uh, work on climate change within the confines of the private sector. Um, Coming out of there, I ended up deciding I wanted to get a little bit closer to the action and actually work at one of these startups, at one of the institutions that, that a firm like New Island would invest in. And that's when I joined Sun Farmer, which is a uh, off-grid solar provider in Nepal that provides primarily uh, solar to power um, water pumps for irrigation. So this is a way for farmers who are off the electrical grid to uh, get power and irrigate and and grow all year round. Um, and, And so I guess the thread that kind of ties these disparate experiences together is really just a passion for figuring out you know, how can we solve this crisis? Trying not to get overwhelmed, trying not to despair in any way, but just at every step being pragmatic. You know, what's the most, how can each of us put our skills forward to uh, reach net zero and decarbonize the the economy and the planet? And that's what brought me to Oxford. And and today, uh, hopefully, we'll be talking a lot about um, carbon removal, carbon capture and storage, and really what it means to achieve net zero. And that's been the focus of my research now that I've shifted back into the academic sphere.
1: Well, Eli, uh, I, and I can't wait to get into it cause you really do explain this stuff so well. And, uh, we have been circling around this subject, you know, it's, it's clear that, uh, the root cause of climate change, or at least in, in terms of global warming is, uh, our, our carbon emissions, we are uh, putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, taking them out of the the planet and putting them into the atmosphere and uh, it is a root cause and we need to figure it out. But it can be a little overwhelming, needless to say, to think about these problems and I have to you just do a great job of explaining it. But before we get into this stuff about, you know, the the meat of this, let's start with our little appetizer. You mentioned you're from Maine, growing up on the Maine shoreline, your familiarity with the importance of the lobster industry, etc. But tell me Tell me about your favorite beach, your favorite shoreline. What the, Do you have an early Maine coastal memory that you'd like to share with our audience?
2: I would say there's a little place on Long Island, and this is not Long Island, New York. Let me be clear. This is Long Island, Maine, which is a small, very small year-round community just off the coast of Portland. There's this little beach. I think it's called Shark Cove. And it's one of those bizarre beaches that has that sort of squish, squeegee sand where when you kick into it it creates a high-pitched sound it's like a singing beach
0: you know somebody i I want to eli don't mean to interrupt but would you find me a smart researcher who can explain that so we can interview them i want to know about that i don't understand the science of that but yeah
2: yeah we've got that sort of memory sand people have been buying for their kids for christmas over the past few years but yeah what's with the singing sand but anyway just yeah i loved going out there as a kid we had a little powerboat and we'd go out there, have a picnic, just kind of uh, tool around the what they call them the calendar islands. There's not actually 365 of them, but there's a lot of them. And it's a really amazing thing because a lot of them have small communities on them. They have really their own culture and it's just a beautiful part of the country. So, come to Maine.
1: No kidding. Uh, we, uh, we love Maine on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and uh, I've got to say, also, follow up, you studied geology. I find that to be very interesting. Um, we don't need to go too far into it, but what wh- why geology? What was the what was it about you, you the way you described it is this like story thing, understanding how the story of change and transition of our planet. But what what drew you to that?
2: That's a great way to put it. I think the story because uh, what it really was was uh, taking a course with a professor called Mark Pagani, who unfortunately has since passed away, uh, but he was a really charismatic lecturer who basically told stories. And he kind of came into his class in his Birkenstocks and often took them off and just laid down. And it was he was it was a very bizarre experience. But he would just sort of tell us these stories about ancient Earth history, like even the sort of transition from anoxic conditions to when plants, you know, early photosynthesizing organisms were able to generate oxygen and how they sort of terraformed the planet in their own image or the oscillations between snowball earth when the whole earth was frozen over and then all the way back to a hothouse earth where where the sea level is higher and everyone's uh, really hot and there's tons of vegetation. Just understanding how those processes happened and how we could possibly know that they happened and how does that actually work. That just completely grabbed me, and I, I uh, figured I just absolutely had to study that. Mm.
0: You know, one of the attributes of all the geologists that I know and talk to is their sense of the time frame of reference for what they think about. And all of the engineers I know think about, well, it has a 10-year project life, a 20-year short term. When you talk to a geologist about what they're doing and what they're thinking about— We're talking hundreds, thousands, eons of time. And an issue like climate change is a fundamentally a geological processes discussion in terms of the frame of reference necessary to understand it. Can you give us kind of a sense of, of that aspect of climate change, the duration in sort of the geologic frame of reference? Where does this... Experience we're having right now with climate change fit in to the timeline of the planet, the story of the planet.
2: I think that's a great question, Uh, and I think uh, really what we're seeing is an unprecedented rate of rise. So typically, the way we measure the temperature anomaly is we look at it sort of 1850 to 1900 pre-industrial baseline. So before we started emitting so much carbon, which let's remember was extracted from the geosphere, extracted from the rock. These are the fossil fuels that were kind of happily sitting underground. And once the British and then very quickly others realized that they could use them for energy, they started taking them out and sort of adding net carbon to the system. So I think if you look at the past, you know, 10,000 years, first of all, that's just the what we call the Holocene. And that's really the kind of happy cocoon within which human humans modern humans and so, sort of civilization as we know it evolved and that's really just an interglacial period in a sort of longer sequence of oscillations between like ice ages and 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 warmer periods but i think all of this has been happening within a, a band of co2 concentrations and temperatures that are sort of much much more familiar to us i would say that the last time when carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere were as high as they are today was probably on the order of two to five million years ago and that would have been during what's called the Pliocene. Uh, And and that's a time when global temperatures were two to four degrees Celsius warmer so I, I, I guess for Fahrenheit we'll just multiply by two so something like four to eight degrees Fahrenheit warmer than they are today and uh, global sea level was as much as uh, 60 feet higher than today. And I'd be happy to go into sort of on a simple basis, kind of how we are able to know that. How do we actually know? Yeah. Why don't you um, do that? How do we I'd reconstruct? Love to, I'd love to. Yeah, okay, sure. Listen, we're
0: all about um, teaching and understanding in depth here. Yeah. Take us down that And just for route.
2: context, I think, um, you know, we think in terms of parts per million in the atmosphere of CO2. That's what we're thinking about. Because CO2, carbon dioxide, is the most important greenhouse gas. It's the gas that Causes radiative forcing and actually amplifies the, or, or rather, you know, ends up trapping more of the heat that we're getting from the sun. And so that's the sort of primary cause of, of climate change. But what we have to remember is it's it's a trace gas. When we every breath we take is something like 70 percent nitrogen and some oxygen, and some other stuff. But CO2 is really just 0.04 percent. It's 400 parts per million. It's almost like you know, in in the entire room that you're sitting in, it, it's like one little glass of water. Okay, maybe. hang I, on I a second. I, I
0: just heard something I did not know. Uh, Currently, the parts per million atmospheric concentration is around 415 or so uh, parts per million, right? Are you saying Mm -hmm. that, and and you said when you exhale, it's 0.04% is CO2. Is 400 parts per million, I mean, is the planet, I didn't realize those numbers were that close, that our expiration... Really? Well, no, is sorry. That... I
2: guess when we, when I, we breathe I... in and we I, I'm not I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a biologist or know much about medicine, so I actually don't know what it's like when we exhale, but when uh, we inhale, oh I'm sorry, we're just inhaling the ambient concentration, right? I so see. I'm sorry. I got you. Yeah. So basically, right now we're at about 410 parts per million, which if you convert it into a more familiar metric, which is percent, that's like 0.04 percent.
0: Got it. Okay. And Thank and you. that's sorry.
2: that's a lot more than it was in the pre-industrial period. So back in the 1850s. Atmospheric CO2 was something like 280 parts per million.
1: Like a teacup so op- in the room.
2: Yeah, exactly. Or a little tiny thimble. like uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot less. And, um, and it's sort of deceptive because that feels like, you know, just a small change. But that actually uh, has massive impacts on the climate system. Okay. And that's okay yeah.
0: Eli I'm sorry I want to I want before we go to the impacts which are very yeah. activated I want we've, to go to the, woken him up I want to go to the to the impact <laughs> Tyler does and I really want to hear that what you talked about on the ship I want y'all oh, go, absolutely to do that but I, I want to help at least me I don't know other people who don't understand this and two two things when you talk about concentrations of co2 in the atmosphere 150 years ago or 500 years ago or thousands of years ago which is part of the understanding of this issue. Uh, Tell us about how that is arrived at. Um, It seems fantastical that we could know something like that. Um, How do we know things like that? and, and, And how reliable do you feel about the understanding when you're projecting back through geologic time on an issue like this?
2: Yeah, well, I'll do my best. I'm a little rusty on that and it would be great to get someone from, you know, the Antarctic Survey or one of these groups, but I'll give sort of the basics. I mean, so the what, whatever, what we do is we find uh, records, geological records that we can interpret. So one of them is, are ice cores. So if you think about the, uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet or the East Antarctic ice sheet or the ice sheet in Greenland, Greenland, what that really is is an accumulation of precipitation in the form of snow and ice that just keeps happening year after year after year. And it's such that it's actually each successive layer is burying the previous layer. So it kind of over time develops this record. And uh, if you drill a core going down, you know, a mile or more, I mean, a, a pretty, I, I forget how deep exactly the West and East Antarctic ice sheets are, but you can go back about 900,000 years with those ice sheets before you sort of exhaust okay, how much so there is so you're gonna, to the Okay. You, so you drill down, you find these deeper yeah, and deeper you, you, layers. And you take out this core and, and in that core are tiny air bubbles for one thing. So the air bubbles are true time capsules of what the atmosphere was like at the time when it was buried. So that's great. You can immediately, directly measure wow. the concentration of CO2. So there's a test another, tube full
0: of air in, in, buried in the lake. Yeah. Ice. There
2: can be air bubbles and they can they can relate those to the ice that's at that layer. And there's things you can do about the geochemistry of the ice. So ice is made of water, which is H2O. And, uh, you know, going back to your high school chemistry and your sort of periodic table, you know that uh, oxygen usually has, well, this is a bit arcane, but in any case, oxygen usually has a weight of 16. So the protons and neutrons in it, it has a certain number of neutrons which give it an atomic weight of 16. Well every now and then, some oxygens have 18 neutrons and they behave identically, that's called a stable isotope, it's the same oxygen, but it's a little bit heavier. And it exists at very trace amounts. But what's interesting is all the processes that we observe in the planet, whether it's precipitation, evaporation of, of water, um, even CO2 or, or gas particles going into the stomata of plants, those processes are different for the heavier isotopes. So when water is evaporating from the ocean, the water that contains the lighter isotopes, the oxygen 16s, evaporates more readily than Mm. the water that has the heavier oxygens, oxygen 18. So over the lower sea level is, in other words, the more water you've basically put onto the Antarctic ice sheet, uh, the more uh, lighter isotopes are sitting in the ice and heavier isotopes are sitting in the water.
0: That's so cool. And so
2: this allows us to infer sea level because we can basically say, okay, well, the sea level had to have been this much lower. Right. If we see this isotopic signature in the ice,
0: so when you're you're talking about the ratio of the oxygen molecules, how what percentage of them are 16s and what percentage are 18? As the water covers the planet, that means more evaporation. That means more 18. And if you know one, you know the other. Apparently, this is yeah. I mean, so this is, exactly. I I, I, w- I want to do that because I, I want people to understand that there are actual rational logical scientific steps of thinking and information gathering that go into the, when you said, this is, we are in an unprecedented period of CO2 emissions. um, That's not just a bullshit statement. That's based on a pretty detailed scientific record of atmospheric concentrations of CO2 that goes back a long way.
2: That's absolutely right. And the interesting thing is, the shocking thing I should say, when you look at a sort of plot of atmospheric CO2 concentrations going back tens of thousands of years, or, or and you look at it, you see some waviness and some oscillation and some variability, and we can talk about what causes that if that's of interest, but at the tail end when when we reach what, what people are now calling the Anthropocene, so really we, the geologists have actually determined that we've actually entered a new geological era, we can no longer say, so we're in the Holocene, we're in the Anthropocene. And that's because the stratigraphy, the record in the in, in the rocks and, and all over the planet is, is now impossible to, uh, you, you can't take out humans' influence on it. You can see the re- evidence of nucleotides from nuclear tests, you can see plastics, you can see all these things. So aliens, 10,000 years from now, would would see this century as a turning point. They would actually be able to see, using the same geologic techniques wow. that we use to go back in time. They would be able to say, "Huh, something crazy happened here," but also, just to finish the thought, it's that it's it's what they call the hockey stick curve because CO two concentrations, yeah, they wiggled a lot, they went up and down, but they were relatively hovering around the same mean. And all of a sudden, in the early 1900s, they just start shooting up, and it's so dramatic. It's such a dramatic increase. The speed with it, with which it's happened is, you know, unambiguously a result of okay. Uh, anthropogenic emissions and fossil fuels, and it's also just unprecedented. It's it's really a it's a massive experiment we're running that's never been run before. There's wow. one potential analog in the geologic record called the PETM, but but that's a bit okay. Um, well, Let let's me, not get into that.
0: <laughs> um, I I want to ask one other science question, just in the way of education for me. When I'm reading the discussions about climate change, particularly those who are in the skeptical uh, community of view on this thing. Uh, it's often someone will say, you know, it's just a trace thing. It's like there's not even that much of this stuff. Like how big of a deal can it be? And you said CO2 is a trace element. We're talking about one part out of 400,
2: 415 million. Yeah, 410 parts per million. Thank you.
0: So 0.04%. Yeah. um, How can it be that a trace element like this, a a gaseous molecule in this vast atmosphere filled with nitrogen and oxygen and all this other stuff and you put this little tiny sliver just a little speck of the stuff sprinkled around the whole world goes out of whack i mean walk us through trace elements and why something can be powerful at this level
2: yeah um that's definitely a question that i wish uh (laughs) one of the people in the physics department can answer, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot. But before Thanks. I do, I just wanted to make a quick comment on the the, the the word skeptic, because I think, you know, when we think about skepticism, skepticism, I think, is a really positive quality. It refers to someone who's always questioning and, but but using a system and using a certain set of tools with which to question, and that's what scientists do. So scientists are actually the best skeptics, because they're skeptical of every theory, and they they use their tools and their knowledge and, and, and the scientific method to test that skepticism and see whether it's warranted. I would say that people that kind of begin with a premise, which is humans aren't causing climate change. And I think, you know, it might be hard to recognize that that might be the premise that they're beginning with, but I think often it is. And then kind of fit the narrative to fit that, that starting assumption. That's not skepticism. To me, that's denial, or it's really just, uh, it's not really an intellectually Honest way of going about it, but let's skip over that and and, and try to get we into agree. you know, yeah. We what agree can, on that. What can zero for four percent of the air do? Well, and again, I really I really think uh, atmospheric physicists could answer this much better than I could. But essentially, when you think about nitrogen, which is what most of the air is, nitrogen is very transparent to the radiation that we're receiving from the sun, and we know that because we can see, <laughs> right? Like, in fact, the air as a whole is transparent to all of the visible wavelengths of light that are coming from the sun otherwise we, we would be in sort of a we, we wouldn't be able to see right? on a clear
0: and, day <laughs> when the exactly, sun is oh, shining we wouldn't have that song if nitrogen wasn't uh, did not disrupt yeah
2: thank yeah, you for that yeah and, and let's remember that CO2 is also transparent in the visible wavelengths but it's not let's remember that electromagnetic radiation that's coming to us from the sun is not just visible light i mean the fact that we evolved eyes that see this specific band is because I would say that's probably because those are the peak wavelengths that the sun is sending us. So, our ancestors, you know, gradually, our, our, our genetic ancestors, pre human, evolved eyes that um, were adapted to the most predominant forms of radiation we receive. But there's tons Man. of other stuff coming at us, too, right? There's ultraviolet, that's why we wear sunscreen, and there's infrared, which is uh, another form of energy that we can't see but it's actually you know it's sh- sort of longer wavelength than visible light just below red and co2 is very uh, highly absorptive of a specific band of wavelengths so every gas every substance has a sort of spectrum you can you can depict um, you know on the x-axis you can draw out the different wavelengths of radiation and on the y-axis you can say how much when it when it, when that wavelength, hits this molecule. How much does it absorb versus how much just passed through it? And so every substance has a very distinct fingerprint.
0: And measurable
2: and and knowable. Absolutely measurable and knowable. And CO2 is really good at absorbing some of the peak wavelengths of infrared that come come at us from the sun. And so that's kind of like the, that's like the first principles and we okay. could go into the more details, but that's yeah, sort let of me, the very so basic. Let of, me
0: connect one last dot. Yeah, yeah When yeah. you say that sure. the CO2 is very good at absorbing in the infrared range, it is infrared radiation that is experienced as heat and temperature, is it not?
2: It sort is, but I, I would say that, you know, this, all of the wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation are energy. So I I mean, the the full flux of energy that we're receiving from the sun. I mean, all of the energy we have available to us is either light in many wavelengths coming from the sun, or radiation coming from the sun, as well as fossil heat, some fossil heat uh, emanating from the earth itself. And that comes from radioactivity, as well as some sort of uh, legacy heat from the friction when the iron core first descended. Okay. Some pretty intense, like early Earth stuff. This is but cool in any I'm case, um, um, I love this, this
0: stuff. I love this. The iron like, core yeah, right? descended. See, now you, now you I didn't. know why to be a geology <laughs> like, Yeah. He Why, it's why, really why did you want to do this? And this <laughs> when is the, the iron answer. core descended, I know the iron core.
1: De- Fuck. Well, yeah. we
0: haven't even started talking about Pangaea <laughs> and the continental drift and how this all used to be one mass. And I forget all because we're going right. into geology. But yeah. But okay. I think. I just want to spend a little time on that kind of stuff, yeah. just to establish—not not that this needs to be proven to—but to, to sort of walk through the thinking that goes into understanding an issue of this complexity. Um, what we haven't talked about, and I think what I want to hear about from your entire uh, time on the boat and the lecture that you gave upon the boat, is really about why it matters that this is happening and the impact discussion. Uh, And the last thing I want to know from you is the what can we do about it discussion. But I'm really interested in the impact discussion, how the thing went on the boat, Tyler. And I'm going to just let you guys. Yeah. I mean,
1: Eli, uh, let's, you know, I guess it's fair to say that we should back up and go pre-Cruise here because uh, you were approached by the Joko Cruise uh, folks who uh, were both friends with Drew and and you were asked to put together a plan for them to put the crews into carbon neutral was the goal right
2: yeah and and i wonder if we can just like super quickly kind of connect the dots with the climate change discussion and and say that you know we talked about the deep time stuff but you know now here we are and and whether or not you want to talk about the geochemical proxies and all this intense reconstruction that the paleoclimatologists have done we've already sort of run the experiment. We've kind of proven, you know, I always like to point to this paper that was published in 1896 by Svant Arrhenius. He was a Swedish scientist. And he he wrote a paper that was called, like, On the Warming Properties of Carbonic Acid, which is what they called CO2 at the time. And he basically predicted what the temperature increase would be if you doubled CO2 concentration. And at the time it was dismissed, but uh, because it wasn't that interesting, I suppose, at the time. But we've basically run that natural experiment. And we can very directly observe how the increasing CO2 concentrations have uh, increased temperature, and then all of the sort of ancillary impacts that that caused. So I think that's kind of where we are today. Like the paleoclimate record is interesting, but all we need to do is sort of look at what's happening. And you know, you know, 19 of the of the hottest years on record have been in the last 20 years. There's been huge advances in the ability, actually here at Oxford particularly, to statistically attribute the increased likelihood of certain extreme weather events to climate change. So you can never perfectly uh, attribute a specific hurricane or a specific drought or, or cold wave to climate change, but you can show how climate change sort of changed the statistics and the probability. So all of that said, here, here we are today, and I think what where the Joko Cruz, Jonathan Colton Cruz comes in is, you know, they, I would say, to their credit, were one of the leaders in what we're seeing as kind of a zeitgeist of many companies Countries, organizations uh, of all stripes, kind of coming to grips with what's happening, and uh, and really finally waking up to the fact that climate change is here. It's continuing, and it's not going to stop uh, unless we do something about it. And I would say the positive thing is we know exact. We pretty much know what we have to do about it, and what we have to do about it. Um, I, I I raised this question when we had the the talk on the cruise, and I stole this from. Cameron Hepburn at Oxford, he often begins talks by asking people, okay, so you've, you may have heard about the Paris Agreement, right, which uh, all countries, with the exception of the U.S. and I think one other, uh, signed on to and basically agreed to say, let's limit warming, let's try to limit warming to below, or actually not let's try, let's limit warming to below two degrees and make best efforts uh, to keep it below 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level. And wh- so we know about that. So we know that We might have to reduce CO2 emissions to get to 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees. But what Cameron Hepburn asks and what I like to ask uh, at this talk in the cruise is, you know, how much would we have to reduce CO2 if we wanted to limit warming to 3 degrees or even 4 degrees? And when I asked the audience, you know, some people said, oh, 50%, 60%, some people said 80%. And a few lone hands um, gave the correct answer, which is 100%, because that's what stopping warming means.
0: Because we're baked in.
2: Sorry?
0: we ba- it's baked
2: in. It's not so much that it's well. Th- there is that question of kind of um, inertia, or like you know, has the has the Earth climate system equilibrated to the new level of CO two in the air? And that has to do with sort of positive feedback loops, and you know, what as the ice caps retreat, does the in- does the decreased albedo, the increased absorption by the oceans that used to be covered by you know shiny reflective ice, does that? you know, that does actually warm the earth more, and then does that release more, melt more ice, et cetera. So that's that question. But I guess what I'm saying is that because carbon dioxide is a cumulative pollutant, because every ton of CO2, in fact, every molecule of CO2 that you put up into the atmosphere basically sits around in the the geophysical system, it doesn't get locked up in the rock, It, it cycles between atmosphere and ocean in perpetuity. So as long as we're still emitting... As long as we're still adding more CO two to the atmosphere than is being absorbed by other things, as long as we're on net increasing the CO two in the atmosphere, the Earth will keep on warming, and it'll keep on warming forever until um, until net emissions are zero. And that's a really important insight that we we kind of got out of the uh, most recent uh, intergovernment the IPCC the intergovernmental intergovernmental panel on climate change right. on their special report at on one point five degrees they basically made that point really emphatically and. The, so the Paris let's, Agreement let's, let's emphasize is about that, net zero.
0: Okay, let's emphasize that point because this is, we hear people talking about we're trying to reduce CO2 emissions in the U.S. by 20%, or there's numbers of reductions. What I'm hearing from you is that, and, and this goes hand in hand with uh, kind of the punch in the gut I got from Tim Kruger when we interviewed Tim Kruger, another University of Oxford uh, researcher, you're talking about getting to net zero emissions down to none, no carbon dioxide emissions net into the atmosphere from here. And Kruger even went further and said there is going to be have to be a massive investment to remove and actually go negative. Is that is that the conclusion in the scientific community? Is that your understanding? And can you explain and expound on that?
2: Yeah, Tim, Tim is absolutely right. And I'll, I'll just back up and explain sort of my very loose understanding of how the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, works. I mean, this is a sort of internationally overseen uh, panel of authors who volunteer for the uh, not very glamorous and pretty uh, thankless task of reviewing all of the papers, all of the scientific papers that have been published in journals over the time since the last report, which is usually like five years. So they're reviewing thousands and thousands of papers, and they're culling and compiling all of sort of the latest and greatest, the best, most cutting-edge data and insights on climate change. And they released this report. And and the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees, what it intended to dis- to do was describe what, what's the difference between a 1.5-degree world and a 2-degree world? And why should we care? And they made it you know, very clear. Uh, case for just how much worse the impacts of climate change are at two degrees rather than 1.5 degrees but the important point that was already sort of known in the scientific community but wasn't really communicated well or what wasn't kind of of quite distilled and I think um, Miles Allen at the University of Oxford and and others can can take a lot of credit for being part of that community that really pushed this idea and got it out there which is you know net zero means uh, we're no longer accumulating, we're no longer adding and and accumulating more CO2 in the atmosphere. So yeah, if the U.S. cuts its emissions by 20%, that's great because the rate at which we're contributing to warming is, you know, is less. Um, But until the day when when atmospheric CO2 concentrations stabilize, we will continue warming. And so I think what a lot of people say is, you know, we're going to reach net zero no matter what the question is are we going to do it sensibly and efficiently and in a way that opens up you know massive business opportunity and growth and and also you know protects biodiversity and sort of creates a, a world that we can be happy that we'll live in that our kids will live in that our grandkids will live in or you know is it some sort of doomsday scenario in which uh, as warming continues and the impacts of climate change get out of hand, we reach net zero emissions for a much more tragic reason. Maybe you know, human, human uh, development and, uh, and industry, which is emitting CO2, is no longer viable and just isn't happening. So I think w- the temperature that we stabilize at is, is 100% or it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's basically a function of how much CO2 we emitted up until the day when we reach net zero. Now let's talk briefly about what net zero means because net zero doesn't mean gross zero. In other words, at the point of net zero, we might still be emitting some CO2. We might still have cruise ships and airplanes and cement factories and steel plants that emit CO2 and maybe even some cars if we haven't fully electrified the fleet. But any of the emissions that are coming from those sort of lingering residual sources of emissions, I think agriculture is another big one that I should have included there. Um, those will all have to be counteracted by an equivalent amount of negative emissions, right? And that's how you get from some lingering emissions to net zero. So net zero, you know, it's not as scary as it sounds. It doesn't mean we can't emit a single thimble full of CO2. It just means we have, we've reduced how much CO2 we're emitting, certainly. And whatever residual amount of CO2 we're continuing to emit, we've found a way to... Use negative emissions to capture and store, so that we're making sure that the level of CO two in the atmosphere stays constant.
1: And what are those? What are those methods, Eli? How are we going to do that?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a, a really, whoops, that, that's a really fascinating conversation. And there's a lot of ways to do that, and a lot of companies coming up with different technologies, etc. I mean, one of the simplest ways that we can take CO two out of the air is with life, right? So plants that photosynthesize, whether they're phytoplankton in the oceans or trees on land or microbes, or that wouldn't be photosynthesis necessarily, but yeah, microbes in the soil that are absorbing CO2. Um, whatever these beings are, they're you know building their bodies out of carbon and when they die, that CO2 gets re-emitted. But what if you cut down the trees and let them regrow but with with the trees you cut down you burned them in a coal-fired power plant and you generated electricity and on the smokestack you actually captured all the CO2 that was coming out you compressed it and buried it underground so you kind of completed a circle whereas before the CO2 was captured by the tree and then when you burned the tree the CO2 went back into the atmosphere so that's a kind of complete circle you haven't really reduced CO2 now we're saying we're generating some energy, and we're, cap- we're uh, burying those CO2 emissions. So that's what people often refer to as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. But there's other sort of much more um, uh, straightforward, I guess, straightforward in the sense of understanding them processes, which is you know, on, the, on the, the stack from a coal-fired power plant or a cement plant, there's CO2 coming out of that smokestack going into the atmosphere, right? What if you captured it before it was vented? the atmosphere, and that's the, that's the focus of a lot of research and a lot of existing projects actually that use various processes to get that CO2 out of the airstream. Um, I like to think of it as, you know, there's different concentrations of CO2 that we could be capturing. Some industrial processes release CO2 at a concentration of like 99%, like when they make ethylene or when they make ethanol or they're compressing natural gas. There's various industrial processes where one of the byproducts of that process is basically pure CO2. So we're no longer talking about 0.04% CO2, we're talking about 100% CO2 or 99% CO2. And that seems like a really great candidate to capture that CO2 and do something with it, whether it's uh, some product we can generate from it or whether we just bury it in the ground in a way that we're sure uh, it won't be re-emitted.
0: So I think the phrase I want the listeners to start to get very comfortable with in understanding and seeing uh, in the dialogue, the policy dialogue, and in the scientific dialogue, is the phrase that you used earlier: CCS, carbon capture and storage. Um, that's not a. It seems pretty straightforward, but there's some nuances to this. Can can you teach us a little bit about about what is CCS and 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 what we should understand about that uh, phrase and its implication in the discussion we're having.
2: Absolutely, that's a great question. And I think first I'll just very briefly um, try to close the loop uh, on why we need CCS because I think that's the question you asked and you mentioned that yes. uh, previous guests spoke to that. And and the reason is you know, if you look at the IPCC report and, and all the models that people run, which they're called integrated assessment models, they basically take all of the economic data as well as the climate data, and they combine it to basically simulate the world and understand you know, what would be the most cost-effective or the most efficient means of getting to net zero. And at this point, there are really no credible models that we can run, that anybody's been able to run, that show us achieving net zero without using carbon capture and storage and all, eventually negative emissions. And one of the I'll give a an answer to that. I'll give some rationale for that. That answers your 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 more recent question, um, which is like, what well, what is this stuff? Um, some emissions are just really hard to deal with. So, for example, cement production. Cement product. Cement's immensely useful and important in the world economy, right? We build our bridges, we build our houses, etc. We, um, uh, it's very useful. It's actually the I think it's the number one most used material after water in terms of by weight. Um, and cement accounts for almost 7 or 8% of CO2 emissions, which is massive. And that's because not only are you burning fossil fuels to generate the heat to run the process, but you're actually taking limestone, which is a material that's very plentiful and it actually has carbon in it. It's calcium carbonate. And you're heating up the limestone, you're cooking it, and you're shooting off a CO2 from the stone itself. So the very act of making cement, the very process that we use to make cement, releases CO2 off of it. So if we want to have cement in a net zero world, what does that mean? I mean, we we have two choices. We can find a replacement for cement, or we can keep making cement, but we can capture the carbon that comes off of it, right? And, And that's sort of where the importance of CCS comes in, carbon capture and storage. It's another tool in our toolbox, and we should remember that it's not the only tool. We certainly need renewables. We need batteries, we need energy efficiency, we need lower carbon fuels, electrification, et cetera. We need to, all of these things to, uh, to transition our, carb- our economy to a net zero economy. But we will need CCS as well because some processes like making cement, making steel, making certain chemicals, they just release CO2 inherently in the process and it's going to be really hard to clean that up without finding replacements. So I think that's um, where it becomes really important.
1: Yeah, I think you answered that question very well. And, um, you know, it's clear, uh, by the way, from the way that you're talking about this, that you have experience not only in the, uh, the scientific realm, but also in the realm of, uh, business, uh, you mentioned on the, on the ship that you had been at a conference in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and you mentioned earlier on this podcast about uh, you talked about the zeitgeist and the fact that there is a change afoot. People are generally, uh, I think, realizing we've always there's the Paris Climate Accords, there's the IPCC uh, study. I mean, we are coming to grips with the fact that we're going to have to make some changes here, and. The business community, I think, gets it. Peter and I were at the EarthX conference last year and were, frankly, pretty floored by uh, the type of investment and entrepreneurial activity surrounding this subject. And I would also point out that we saw uh, we interviewed uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island there. And he was like, hey, listen, I'm here because this is where. Uh, the business community and Republicans are talking about climate change in earnest. So hmm. there is, there's definitely, as I like to say, we've turned the corner in terms of no longer being in the denial era. Um, and seeing as the American Trollline podcast network uh, focuses on coastal issues, um, this has been a major point of discussion in our adaptivity to sea level rise. But mm-hmm. one of the things that, um, you talked about on the on the ship that i think is really important is you talked about uh and I, I i don't recall who said it you were you were quoting someone but you said if carbon if we hadn't realized that we could burn carbon for energy we would have needed to invent it by now because it's so yeah it's <laughs> it's got such good energy density would you kind of talk about that a little bit about that for uh, our listeners
2: yeah, that was uh, so. I was at the International Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage Conference in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, of all places. But actually, it makes a lot of sense because Saudi Aramco, which is the biggest oil and gas company in the world, and also the most profitable company in the world, um, uh, you know, they have a lot. Uh, they're sort of finally joining the the climate conversation, and and where they think they can plug in is on. Uh, this idea of a circular carbon economy—it's kind of interesting to hear these. Uh, you know, you hear about the term circular economy usually from a very different crowd. It's interesting to hear that term kind of co-opted by a large oil company. But um, I think it was the CEO of Saudi uh who said that, and he basically said, "Yeah, if we hadn't discovered hydrocarbons, we would have invented them because they're so damn useful." And that's potentially a controversial statement. I think some people might disagree with it. But just to evaluate the sort of positive elements of the statement, I think. He was he is absolutely right that hydrocarbons are extremely energy dense. They're very useful at running uh, airplanes. I actually had a really interesting conversation about the properties of jet fuel and the fact that you know jet fuel from fossil fuels is a mix of all kinds of different hydrocarbons of different length. The the chain of the hydrocarbon is very variable length, and that means that it doesn't really have a boiling point. As you boil it or freeze it what, or what have you, different uh, components of it will freeze or boil first. So if you made a uniform fuel, you might start to be concerned about freezing or or you know the fuel freezing in midair, things like that. So there's the, I mean that's a sort of very detailed point but like there are certain properties of fossil fuels that are very useful. And some of that is because we kind of we grew up with them. We This is music as a, as to our ears species. over here in Texas, I got to say.
1: Yeah,
0: I got to i got comment kind of, we did not know that that one of the aspects of of, of carbon-based fuels is this A, you can manufacture it and build different energy storage fuel types and you can get this temperature range by varying the length of the carbon chains that are in the fuel and affect its freezing point. I mean, wow, it is it. I mean, it's good stuff. That's why we use it. It it is. It's it's good stuff. And
2: and we can. Yeah, we can make basically the same thing with biofuel, right? We can turn wood into methanol, or we can make ethanol from corn. We can we can make biofuels which basically behave chemically the same as the fossil hydrocarbon. It's the same stuff, right? And produces um,
0: CO2 emissions too, even though it's produced in a better way, right? Same.
2: Yeah, but I mean, look, you can even take this to its logical conclusion, and this is what the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is discussing with their NAOM, uh, this new city they're building in the north of the country. I think it's the size of Belgium. It's like a a district that's going to use no fossil fuels. And they're talking about this circular carbon economy concept where you could, we haven't talked yet on this episode about direct air capture, but direct air capture is kind of like the, it's the most outlandish, but yet... (laughs) Exciting! It's kind of like the the most extreme form of carbon capture we'll ever do. And direct air capture is exactly what it sounds like. It, it's basically taking CO2 out of the air. And from earlier in the conversation, uh, everyone will remember that there's only 0.04% CO2 in the air. So imagine trying to filter out such a tiny impurity from so much air. Obviously, that's going to take a lot of energy, right? Mm-hmm. So direct air capture is sort of handicapped by the fact that it's always going to be An energy-intensive process, but what if you generated the energy that you needed to remove CO two from the air from renewable sources? Right. Right. What if you use solar and wind to power that process? And maybe there is a a, we'll come up with some lower energy process to do that. But so the kind of the logical conclusion of the circular carbon economy is what you know. Someday we'll probably just be capturing CO. We might feel like we'll just capture CO two from the air and then use that CO two to synthesize hydrocarbons and use more energy. To, you know, tear the C off the O or, you know, add some H's and and build these long chain hydrocarbons that we want to uh-huh. use for materials, plastics, lubricants, maybe even fuels. So um, let me let me yeah.
0: um, just add. This is a really interesting and I got to tell you, there's something that is coming across and I don't know if I'm reading it right. But it it sounds like and it feels like you're like, hey, there are answers to this. There are actual technological steps that can be taken uh, to do this, and we really kind of have a handle on what that's going to require. Now, let's set aside politics and money and implementation, but from a technical standpoint, you sound optimistic as hell.
2: I mean, I think where I come out on this is that we talked about, I think the, the most important point we talked about today was the idea that what matters is net zero. If we want to hold warming, right now, warming, we're at one point one degrees Celsius, so a little bit more than two degrees Fahrenheit above the pre-industrial. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually it's enormous because remember that that's an average over the entire Earth surface. So in the mm-hmm. Arctic, that's as much as you know four degrees Celsius, eight degrees Fahrenheit. It, it varies the degree to which to how much warming we've seen in different regions of the world. But in any case, we're at 1.1 degrees Celsius and we're trying to hold warming to 1.5 degrees or two degrees. Mm-hmm. And those are sort of, that's sort of the safe range. I mean, we're still gonna have bad impacts. We're still gonna have um, you know, people are gonna lose their homes, people are gonna lose their crops, um, there's gonna be enormous expense and coastal regions will certainly suffer. But it will be, let's say, we, we sort of agreed as a global community, yeah, it's going to be rough, but we're we're willing to tolerate a 1.5 degree world, or we're willing to tolerate a two degree world. Mm-hmm. I should say that the small island nations would vehemently disagree, and they'd Absolutely. say, "Well, that's our existence." Right, and Do you want to, and it's
0: yeah. a, you know, it's, it's it's a tolerance perhaps, but it al- is also that in that in, to slow this down and actually make the turn we need to make. Uh, there's going to be this momentum, and as you said, inertia. Uh, trying to pull this off at less than one and a half degrees C. Increase seems pretty tough to do. Exactly, if it's going to so take if we, if all start, hands on
2: deck here just to hit that target. That's absolutely right, and 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 yeah, to 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 stay within, to stay under one point five degrees, or to stay under two degrees, is is a daunting project. And but we have models where we've looked at, you know, what would we have to do to keep warming under two degrees. And and to your point, I mean, first of all, we really only have until probably twenty fifty or twenty sixty because you know, if we reduce emissions at the fastest possible rate, that's about when we can reach net zero. Um, and so given that time frame, we know how, you know, th- things move slowly. Like, yes, we, we might someday have electricity generation from nuclear fusion at temperature, at ambient temperature and, and we'll be able to generate tons of energy. But, like, that's far enough out that we can't count on that for, for reaching net zero in time. So basically, exactly your point. We already know pretty much we we more or less know what the suite of technologies are that, that would allow us to reach net zero by 2050 or 2060 which is a which is a time frame and an an emissions pathway that's compatible with the paris agreement so yeah we kind of we can kind of say yes okay great keep putting r and d keep putting money and resources into coming up with the next generation of technologies which will help us be you know even more sustainable and 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 generate energy even cheaper and and lead us into who knows what amazing future but in the meantime, let's work with what we have, because that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to basically use lithium-ion batteries. They're not It's not even the best battery chemistry, but it's the one we've built the most of. So we, it's just become the cheapest by nature of building a ton of it. We've got solar panels. We've got offshore and onshore wind. We've got CCS. We kind of know what we have to work with. And yes, using what we have to work with now, it is possible to achieve net zero uh, in time. It's going to require massive uh, policy and 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 uh investment but but that will pair pale in comparison with the losses to gdp that we will incur if we don't make this investment that's the key thing people have to remember and there's lots of research that's actually tried to make that comparison that said you know what do we think the costs will be uh the enormous costs to adapt to climate change and let's remember that climate change will just keep going if we if we don't that's why it's just a matter of when we reach net zero, not if. We have to reach net zero because if we just keep warming, the costs will just escalate infinitely and we'll just be constantly adapting to an ever more uninhabitable world. Um, and that's why, um, yeah, we, we, we have the suite of technologies and it's just a matter of coming up with the policies and also the investment that can can let us implement those.
1: Absolutely, and I want to get into that um, in, a, in a second I got to say, though, uh, it's eerily familiar with our uh, attempts right now to flatten the curve with the coronavirus. Good comparison. And uh, the only difference is the coronavirus will cycle around and then we're going to get herd immunity and it won't be as impactful, hopefully, as it continues its cycle around. It won't be novel anymore. Whereas Mm -hmm. with climate change, uh, if we if if we don't do anything, uh, it will. The cost will just continue to escalate until, Eli, as you said, there's the the real dark doom and gloom scenario where we just uh, cease to be able to exist on the planet. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, Peter, do you want to? Well,
0: let's stay with this point okay. because I think this is a really good point. Um, I've seen people asking, like, why aren't we reacting to climate change like we we're reacting to the coronavirus? And you're right. One attribute of the coronavirus is at some point we suspect that that sort of fades out as immunity gets transferred and it has an end point. Climate change as an issue really seems to be on an escalating curve and no action hockey stick going up. Right. And but the the, in terms of the public response, I mean, can you think of like, you know, three weeks ago, could we get everybody off the streets in New York? That I mean the the city, you know, it would be what are you? Of course not. Could we shut down every restaurant in New York City? Right. So the motivation that derives from coronavirus is the fact that it will kill your ass or your grandmother or your parents, and there's high risk. And boy, all of a sudden, the political. Um, you know, resistance to spending a trillion dollars being announced by Trump today to seeing countries all over the world putting hundreds of billions of dollars, all hands on deck is happening. Uh, Warren Buffett announced this week that he's pulling out of a, uh, a, a, a a big LNG project that he's been criticized for investing in the head of BlackRock Investments, the largest in, uh, investment trust fund in the world at $7 trillion has made an announcement. So look, it started. I mean, um, Eli, talk to us about, look, This this you have a foothold in the business community investment community. Uh, let's talk about this and compare. You guys were on this damn cruise boat when the coronavirus happened. I mean, this. how do these things fit together or what's the compare and contrast with these to threatening yeah. problems
2: in response? I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's really interesting because i think um to me the similarity is about the fact that they're both emergencies and yes exactly it's just what's the human psychology about willingness to accept what we do to try to combat them because i, I want to make the point that you know coronavirus is a virus that as far as we know you get it and then once it runs its course if it hasn't killed you you no longer have it right that's uh, unless that we're wrong about herd immunity and something you can get multiple times but to me That sounds a lot like methane, which is another greenhouse gas, which basically after an average lifespan of 12 years, uh, degrades back to a CO2. So the thing about climate change vis-a-vis CO2, which is the greenhouse gas that's most important for climate change, is that it's actually way worse than coronavirus, because once you've added a unit of CO2 to the system, it's there forever, unless you suck it out of the air again. Whereas with coronavirus, once you add a unit to the system, which is an infected person, uh, you know, they will eventually recover. So it's it's kind of, it's interesting to kind of think about that. But anyway, let's talk about the sort of the crisis and, and the real emergency, because it is obviously affecting all of us. And I think, for me, the coronavirus pandemic is sort of, you know, it brings out the best and the worst in people, right? I mean, I've heard anecdotes from some of my friends here at Oxford who are of Asian descent about you know, receiving sort of racist or uh, unfriendly comments about them wearing masks and things like that. So, you know, certainly people be- can become panicked and they be- can become nasty. But on, a, on the positive side, it also sort of brings us together and we realize we're all subject to the same uh, perils and people in Iran and South Korea and China and Africa and all over the world are, are dealing with the same thing. And, and, and so it kind of brings us together. And also I think... Um, yeah, the, the sense of community and response. So what I hope comes from it, because what I hope doesn't happen is that um, this admittedly important emergency that we absolutely need to deal with doesn't overshadow and doesn't sap the momentum that's been building in recognition of a much greater threat, a much greater potential loss and a, and a much bigger emergency that has the unfortunate characteristic of just being a little bit less Uh, It's not something that, you know, enters your body. That's a very frightening thing. I think as humans, we're just, we're afraid of, you know, ourselves and our loved ones having something really invade us and and do something to us. That's a very horrifying prospect, even though in the grand scheme, the economic costs, the human human death toll, everything pales in comparison to what we believe uh, is already happening and will continue to happen with climate change. So, I, I just hope that we can we can learn we can try to find a silver lining for coronavirus, and I've already been seeing some great positive stories like you know people on the streets of Italy singing from their windows to maintain solidarity when they can't leave their home, or people talking about, you know, just reconnecting with loved ones over Skype who you wouldn't have talked to otherwise. So let's hope we can we can take some positive things away from the crisis and and maybe apply them to climate change and say, you know what? This is an emergency. Let's mobilize the resources that this deserves. And let's solve this problem once and for all, because every investment we make in emitting less is that's a permanent benefit that we've provided to ourselves that's going to pay dividends for years.
1: Yeah. And uh, Eli, I I completely agree with that. And um, there's so much opportunity around this around solving climate change that I think we should be really stoked for. Um, We get to re-envision the way we use our land, the way we use our coastlines, the way we farm, the way we look at aquaculture and energy. And this has the opportunity to um, completely reshape our economy in really like super positive ways. And uh, I thought that you did just an excellent job uh, articulating that on the ship and you know, I, 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 I forgive me if if you already covered this. I, I had to step away for a quick second to get my charger. But uh, on the ship, you talked about the um, the externalities of carbon and how our regulatory structure basically needs to step in and make sure that we are adequately accounting for the full cycle of carbon, not just you know, the cost of acquiring it and refining it so that we can burn it. Um, can you talk a little bit about where we're we where we are at with that? Um, obviously in the United States right now it seems that we are uh, not doing anything um, at the moment but how are other countries doing? Uh, you mentioned on the in the talk about California having a full package cost um, in their in their program what what's that about?
2: yeah so I, what you're describing really well is this idea of an externality uh, really which means, costs that aren't accounted for in the economic system. And we know that carbon, releasing carbon into the atmosphere, basically using the atmosphere as a permanent waste dump, definitely has brings costs with it. And it's really hard to evaluate exactly what that cost is. But certainly there are all kinds of policies that have been proposed, and many of them are in place, which put some sort of price on carbon to sort of guide its, uh, to incentivize abating. And I think, you know, the ab- about something like um, 10 gigatons so something something like 20 percent of global emissions are currently in some kind of carbon market whether it's in canada or the european union california i think china has some there's there's carbon markets all over the world and i think one but there's another type of policy that i think is really interesting and this is the subject of my work that i'd like to share um which is really on the supply side so we're very focused on putting a price on carbon that the person who buys the product experiences. So when I pump gas into my car, that gas is a little bit more expensive because I'm paying a carbon tax, let's say, and that's going to, on on net, incentivize me to eventually invest in a hybrid and and, a, and an electric car, right? Or I'm a cement plant and I have to pay for every ton of carbon I emit now, so that's going to provide a very strong financial incentive for me to improve my efficiency, to start using biofuels, uh Increase the cementitious material in my cement, so I'm not using as much clinker, things like that. But that only really gets you so far because you're basically—I kind of liken it to—you're trying to nudge, you know, 7.6 billion people to change their behavior. And what if we just tried to nudge, you know, the 90 oil and gas majors who account for 99% of of oil and gas extraction? Because at the end of the day, someone digs up the oil and gas. It gets refined, it gets transported, and then it gets purchased by someone who burns it. And we've sort of decided, with this thing called the polluter pays principle, that the person who burns the carbon is 100% responsible for the damage that those emissions cause. And that's a bit weird when you think about it, because that's not how we treat every industry, right? When we think about tires in the US, I'm pretty sure that tire manufacturers are responsible for cradle to cradle or cradle to grave disposal of those tires, or when we think of nuclear energy. When you make nuclear waste, you don't just get to throw it out, I mean you, the person who got to sell that nuclear energy and, and benefit from generating it, they've got to pay the cost for cleaning up the pollution that they caused. Okay. And that's kind of how we think about a lot of industries. And, and for some reason we've given the fossil fuel industry a full pass, and I think certainly this cost should be shared, right? Why is it 100% on the consumer? I, I similarly don't think it should be 100% on the fossil fuel companies, but it should be shared in some way. Okay. And let's, simplest- me, Yeah,
0: sorry. Uh, well, keep going. Keep going. Please. I'm sorry. Uh, I,
2: well, um, basically the the simplest policy that that would uh, basically bring about net zero is something that uh, Miles Allen and Stuart Hazeldean and some others, uh, academics in the UK, proposed back in 2009. And it's this idea of basically mandating sequestration of carbon. So you could basically say anyone within this country who's digging up oil and gas, for every 100 units of oil and gas they dig up, they've got to bury, let's say in the beginning, only one unit, so 1%. So 1% of the fossil carbon they're digging up, they've got to find some other CO2 somewhere from one of their plants or from from one of their neighbor's uh, factories and capture that CO2 and bury it uh, geologically. And that percentage that they have to bury could escalate year after year until it eventually reaches 100%. Because remember, net zero means all the carbon you're digging up you're putting back. So it's this idea of a carbon take back obligation or a carbon put back obligation, whatever you want to t- whatever you want to call it, that you kind of you you give industry uh, a, a, an additional criteria that they have to criteria on that they have to abide by which is you've got to start burying, you've got to start sort of decarbonizing a percentage of your product and that is going to scale up to 100% over time so got that it. at the end of the day Sure, you can keep making oil and gas, but it's going to be it's going to be decarbonized oil and gas because you've already done the work of taking the CO two out of the out of the air.
0: Okay, uh, so for that. that I want to dig deeper into this idea. Um, we're talking about going to the producer level and operating there, as opposed to as you said, the retail customer at the gas pump, adding twenty cents to the gallon, and trying to incentivize them to perhaps buy less gas. This is very, very different, obviously. And you said that we we're talking about creating a requirement for them to extract or, and sequester a volume of CO2 that is comp- comparable to the production of CO2 in the materials that they generate and manufacture and sell. I get that, that's really cool. The requirement can be clear. And the other part is the possibility of paying them to do this. In other words, if, we, if these guys can get richer being climate sensitive and climate responsible they'll do it and this is what's behind the concept behind the irs provision 45q that tyler and i talk about all the time which is a car is a tax credit and in interviewing uh susan havorka and the folks at the university of texas bureau of economic geology who are research scientists geologists by the way working on secure geologic storage um, what was interesting is that the techniques, the technology necessary to, to sequester carbon in geologic formations is something that oil and gas companies do right now. And that is drill holes, build pipelines, move gaseous material through pipelines, and pump stuff down into the damn gr- ground. <laughs> so <Absolutely. laughs> so the, this, the irony of this, just, the fact is these guys are going to be a crucial... In just part, the, they're going to be crucial players in the success of the plan you want to execute. Is that a? Is that am I? Is that true? Am I? Am I misunderstanding it? And B, do you find it at all weird?
2: <laughs> Peter, you are you are spot on, Peter. And this is really at the heart of kind of I don't know, just putting our sort of biases, whatever they may be, whatever side of the political spectrum or whatever industry you work for. Setting your biases aside and, and and just, you know, running yourself through a thought experiment like, okay, someone graduated as a geology major in 1980 and they joined uh, Shell or British Petroleum. And nobody knew about climate change at the time. I mean, some people did, but it wasn't really, it wasn't a big issue. And they just, you know, joined a, a company that produces a valuable product that everybody buys. And they applied their geotechnical expertise, their ability to, you know, evaluate seismology on the seafloor and construct pipelines, blah, 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 to, to a company that needed it. And, you know, they might still be at that company in an executive position. And they didn't start out trying to, you know, be the villain and destroy the world. I mean, certainly the fossil fuel companies bear an enormous responsibility uh, for having deceived the public, you know, through uh, basically shoddy and and deceptive. I uh, how about the deliberate science, campaign
0: to confuse? But how about that?
2: Yeah, they spent 30 years, you know, deceiving the public so they could, uh, even though, you know, Exxon from the memos that have been released, it's clear that even in the early nineties, they were fully aware of the damage that their product caused. So it's no different from that movie that just came out about Dow Chemical where they, you know, basically knew they were polluting the waters. It's exactly the same thing. So that, that, that's a, that's a huge moral and, and, terrible weight and burden that those companies will always bear and the people responsible will always bear. But the vast majority of the people of these companies are not responsible for that. And they are, right. you know, smart, talented people who are going to need jobs if we if we stop buying fossil fuels. And so I fully agreed that the that for better or for worse, and I would say for better, the oil and gas companies are very, very well prepared to provide these services. They know how to put stuff in the ground. They know how to to drill holes and they they know how to build multi, you know, hundreds of million dollar projects.
1: Yeah, definitely. Eli, we've been talking for over an hour now and uh, you know, everything you we've, this walkthrough has been, I just think so totally on point. Um, I do want to, before we close out, I do want to get your thoughts on what it was like to be at sea when Corona happened. but before we get to that, do you have any final thoughts on Carbon and uh, kind of this this discussion we're having? Any themes you're keeping your eyes on? And, and you know, what what do you want to leave our audience with on this subject?
2: I think that the most important thing to remember is the sort of mandate for net zero. The fact that that's where we're going to get eventually. And, and that you, no matter what walk of life, whatever career you have, you will be and can be part of that solution. You know, you don't have to sort of... I think it can be overwhelming at times, the sort of threat of climate change. But you can just take some small piece of it. You know, if you're um, if you work in a law firm, maybe you work with your uh, with your firm to come up with a very credible carbon offsetting plan that uses some percentage of geological storage to offset the likely fairly modest emissions from flying around. Or you know, if you work at at a at a convenience store, you can you know, invest in energy efficiency improvements, I mean, you can, of course, everybody can also educate themselves and vote. That's another way you can participate. So I think there's just, there's so much opportunity, like just the, the, the billions and billions of dollars that are going to be spent investing in the future. And they're not just, it's not just an evaporation of money. It's investments in real projects that add value. When you build a a solar plant, when you build a carbon capture plant, you're producing a productive asset that provides a benefit to society and that's going to generate value. And so, the, the, there's going to be so much capital deployed and, and there's going to be so much need for really all hands on deck. So I think it's exciting. It's important, uh, to, to inform yourself and understand sort of the gravity of the challenge before us. But then once you've done that, you know, get ready to work and, and get excited because there's going to be opportunities for everyone. Wow.
0: You know, great, great, uh, conclusion, uh, state statement. Um, uh, and you know, it doesn't strike me, I'm not surprised that uh, this discussion is being driven by a lot of young professionals around the globe. Uh, this will be the call to a generation of, of engineers and economists and and serious research scientists and all kinds of people who are going to have to get good at this. Um, it's the challenge of the time. This is the turd we pass down, uh, and I mm-hmm. would say our generation, but I would say the human community passed down and uh, there's a group of folks on the planet right now who are going to be uh, at the forefront of trying to uh, take the edge off of this uh, problem. And, and as you said, a true—it's a true crisis, um, an often overused term, but it's fundamental to the to the function of the planet. Uh, so, what a great time to, to, to talking to you, Eli, and I, Tyler. Can we do this? We got to do more. Um, there's. Of I've course. got about, I, I, Eli, if you would come back every once in a while and update us on the state of the research, the t- state of the investments. Um, are we headed in the right direction? Is this taking shape as in a policy way that you think is uh, workable? I'd, you know, it would be great to, to have you back. I, I hope you would come back once in a while and, and keep talking to us about this issue.
2: Thank you, Peter. And, and thank you, Tyler. It's been really great. And I, I would love to come back. Uh, and yeah, I think this is a exciting topic and we've got to keep, we got to keep at it.
1: All right. Before we sign it off, Eli, give us, give us your thoughts on uh, the cruise last week and what your experience was like being at sea as the world changed.
2: <laughs> it was pretty wild, as you know, Tyler. I mean, I think. We probably sanitized our hands, I would say 50, 60 times a day. Every single intersection in the ship, the staff would almost kind of aggressively approach you and squirt your hands with hand sanitizer with a smile on their face. But the implication being, you know, keep your germs to yourself. And you know, it was a bit tense. I think um, the funny thing about being on a ship is unless you want to pay a lot of money, you don't have very good internet. So we were kind of locked away from the world and having come back since and seeing just the nonstop articles about the virus, it was kind of nice in looking back. We were a little bit blissfully ignorant of what was happening around the world during that week. And we were kind of just all crossing our fingers and hoping that nobody on board uh, had it. And we seem to have emerged unscathed, although I feel bad because, I feel badly because um, as soon as we landed, it became clear that Holland America, the, the cruise provider, was shutting down for the next 30 days. And so, you know, something like six or 700 staff On that ship who are from countries like Indonesia the Philippines who don't have any sort of papers to enter the US they're basically on that ship even now (laughs) and I really feel for them I hope that not they did none of them got it and that um, they'll be fine but it was pretty trippy because as you remember it's like you know we're leaving the Dominican Republic and we're supposed to go to uh, I think Turks and Caicos and uh, you know halfway there we get we get the information that, oh, you know what, Turks and Caicos doesn't want you. They've basically decided they're not accepting any cruise ships. So we kind of had to turn the ship and go to another spot. So we were kind of like this band of uh, undesirables that was getting shuttled around the Caribbean. Um, So definitely a strange experience, but very fun cruise. And I um, encourage anyone who's interested to check out the Jonathan Colton cruise, first of all, on its own merits, but also the carbon plan, which we helped them with. Uh, maybe in the show notes we can we can include a link to that so people well
0: can, uh, if, yeah i think we should that. run it on coastal news today uh, we should make it available and we will um fantastic uh, yep well ladies and gentlemen it is eli mitchell lawson he is a researcher at the university of oxford his master's degree is in environmental change and management from oxford a former impact investor at the island New Island Capital and a social entrepreneur with a company form- uh, formerly uh, called Sun Farmer, an off the grid solar company. A guy who knows a hell of a lot about the technical science of climate change and the business of climate change. And Eli, what a, what a pleasure having you on to help our audience understand a pretty complicated
2: topic. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. This is a lot of fun. Appreciate it. My father.